Welcome back to Love Murder Current Affairs, our show about the stories of love gone fatally wrong that are in the news right now. If you're looking for our regular full-length 90-minute to two-hour episodes or two-and-a-half-hour as this week's was, those come out on Wednesdays and these come out on Fridays. So welcome. For today's Current Affairs, we're doing something different. We will be covering one of the biggest trials happening right now. But the murder in question isn't of a person, but of an entire industry. Today, we are diverging from our usual love murder material and talking about Sam Bankman-Fried, the disgraced former CEO of crypto exchange FTX, who is on trial for what is alleged to be one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. And to get into it, we've got a special guest, an expert, I'd say, my husband, who, in addition to being a host to numerous podcasts, is also the former head of marketing for FTX. Hey, guys. Wow. Hi, Nathaniel. What a weird time. It is a very weird time to be alive indeed. I want you guys to know that I turned out a lot of random Wall Street Journal and New York Times interview requests <laughs> to, to be here at, uh, at Love Order. <laughs> well, I think I knew someone. Yeah, you knew someone. You, you had an in. We are very, very lucky to have you. No, I'm, I'm excited. I, you know, so the trial just started today, really. We're recording this on Wednesday night. The trial started with jury selection on Tuesday. The opening arguments were heard on Wednesday, moving into Thursday. And what I thought would be maybe interesting is for folks who are trying to pay attention or interested in this, who don't really have a background in crypto and don't really understand this, it's such a sensational trial. It's making coverage across every type of media. It's very clearly bigger to people than just a crypto story or just even an economic story. I wanted to try to basically give a little bit of background, like the very, very 101. And then you guys can kind of come in with whatever questions that you have. There is weirdly a love dimension to this story that there is. I think you're going to hear a lot about in the press. Yes. And I'm interested in that dynamic because it seems like that might be a narrative that the defense will be running with. But before we get too carried away with the nitty gritty, why don't you give us the overall picture for people who aren't as familiar as I am currently, unfortunately, because it has affected our lives? <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to start actually, and I'll do this super fast, but I think it's important to explain what actually is a crypto exchange and what actually is a hedge fund and how those things add up to what's alleged. Please. An exchange is a place where people go to trade some type of asset. The New York Stock Exchange is a place where people can say, I want to buy this stock, I want to sell this stock, right? That's what it does. A crypto exchange does the same thing, but for crypto instead of stocks. Now, a hedge fund is an institution whose only job it is to make money, right? They can trade, they can make leveraged bets, they can do all sorts of different things to make money. There are really very few parameters or limitations on what they can or can't do. So like the Eddie Murphy Christmas movie with the guy from Ghostbusters. Trading Places? Yes. Is that a hedge fund? That was a trading firm. <laughs> okay. It was closer to a hedge fund than an exchange. They traded yes. on an exchange. Exactly. They traded on the exchange, but their only job was to make money. Correct. Yeah. Nathaniel, I have a question too. With hedge funds is most of the, I would assume that they have to file taxes and do everything by the books, but do they have certain things that they can get away with that aren't regulated with just like New York Stock Exchange hedge fund companies? So in general, hedge funds are some of the most opaque financial institutions that we okay. have. There are lots of ways to make them not not regulated, but 
work in weird corners and weird exceptions. And in crypto, that's tripled because the whole world is still in the midst of figuring out proper regulatory regimes for crypto. So historically, there have been, it's not that it's not regulated, that's definitely a misnomer, but there's certainly a lot more opacity in how people do things and fewer safeguards, right? Okay. So the reason that it's important to understand that there's these two things at question is that they are intimately related through Sam Bankman-Fried, who was the CEO of both FTX and originally the CEO and co-founder of Alameda Research, which was his hedge fund. Now, these institutions were nominally separate. They had, by the end, separate CEOs, separate leadership, and specifically, they were supposed to have separate everything else, including financial accounts. What became revealed at the very end of all of this and around the collapse of FTX was that there was actually no separation in practice between FTX, specifically its accounts and Alameda Research. And what that has led to is an alleged crime in which Sam basically engineered a situation where FTX customer deposits were used by Alameda for trading, and then they lost them. So imagine that you had a Bitcoin on an exchange. Well, as soon as you want to go get that Bitcoin and withdraw it from the exchange, you expect it to be there. All of these exchanges, by and large, guarantee, they say that your assets are fully backed. They're on the exchange. They're protected. They're custodied. And that was written into the FTX terms of service. That was what all the employees believed. But when a set of things happened that are probably even a little bit outside of the scope of the show, although I'll do a brief timeline, happened that caused a bunch of people to want to withdraw all of their assets at once last November, it turns out that the assets weren't there and that they weren't there because They were never really accounted for, it appears, as segregated customer assets separate from the accounts that FTX used for everything else. Basically, all of the money that FTX was making, which was significant, all of the money that Alameda was using to trade, and all of the customer deposits were just in a bunch of big slush funds altogether that Sam and his basically chief consigliaries didn't really differentiate. So what's alleged is that Sam knowingly along with a very small handful of co-conspirators, perpetrated fraud, saying publicly that customer assets were protected, that they were safe, that they were segregated, when in fact they weren't. And not only were they not protected, but they were being used actively by a hedge fund, which was nominally supposed to be a separate company, in order to trade. And ultimately, when that hedge fund lost a ton of money in the summer of 2022, it led to a situation where they were way underwater, And when a run happened on FTX, they couldn't repay their debts. So that's what's alleged. And the real core question and what the prosecution will try to prove is that Sam knowingly did this. He knew that the money was going to Alameda. And what Sam will try to prove is that it was just negligence, that he was a very bad CEO and a bad manager of money, but that he did things in good faith. He listened to the counsel of lawyers. He never intended to steal anyone's money. And that's really what a jury is going to have to sort out. But isn't there proof that his co-founder and CTO built like a backdoor to be able to funnel customer funds in order like to the hedge fund? So let's talk about key players. Okay. yeah. So there are four people basically who are a part of this conspiracy effectively. There's Sam, who is the CEO, Gary Wang, who is his CTO and co-founder. Nishad Singh, who was the head of engineering and for all intents and purposes, a co-founder. And there was Carolyn Ellison, who was the CEO of Alameda Research. These are the four people that seem to have knowledge of this explicit decision to allow Alameda Research to use customer funds. 
And part of why people think that the case against Sam is so damning is that all three, Gary, Nishad, and Carolyn, have taken deals from the U.S. Department of Justice, admitted guilt, said that they coded a backdoor to allow Sam to change balances on the exchange, point to how money was moved between FTX and Alameda inappropriately, point to how Alameda wasn't included in normal risk controls. So all of these things are have been sort of sworn in in, in witness by statements by lots of people, by the three people with knowledge of the situation. It seems like a very hard case for Sam to win. I feel like also just in general, if you're the CEO of a, at the time, multi-billion dollar company, isn't it your responsibility to make sure that even though it's your kind of, he's scapegoating the blame onto legal counsel or whoever else he trusted, ultimately, if you're doing all the press conferences and talking about the growth of your company and your value, like the valuation of the company, wouldn't you want to make sure that that's accurate? Yes. So the issue is, is though, is what's where the line between negligence, criminal negligence and actual outright fraud is. And the government's case is that this is outright fraud. So right now he's he has seven charges that are part of this trial. By the way, this isn't the only trial. He has another one coming up in March around campaign finance charges and bribing a Chinese official. This one relates to wire fraud, conspiracy to commit wire fraud, securities fraud, commodities fraud and money laundering. So there's a vast space between you just sucked at being a CEO and you knowingly did this. And again, going back to what Jesse was asking in terms of these co-conspirators having admitted that there were very specific seeming, you know, Sam has basically denied these backdoor type things that these folks have said explicitly and put on the record that are there. forensically, can they prove that they were there? We'll see during the trial. Gary and Nishad are the only two people who really understood FTX's code base. Gary built basically 95% of it with Nishad building the other 5%. And it was sort of purposefully opaque in some ways, probably to be able to hide these things. It may end up a he said, she said, but right now there are at least three he and she saids against Sam's no, I didn't. I'm sorry to introduce another player, but I was reading that Slate article today, which guys, just if it helps you to have a visual, I'll probably include that because even though I know what's going on, I read a Slate article today that really helped me like see and understand the players. Where does Ryan Salem come into this? So he's actually more involved in the part of the trial that will happen in March. Okay, because it was something about his girlfriend. And I saw that he bought a jet and he was like spending millions on his hometown and all this stuff. Guys, Nathaniel worked for FTX. We were not buying jets. I just got to tell you. And also, sorry, I know I'm like jumping ahead here. I want to talk about Ryan and like other people that are involved in this who obviously benefited a lot. But to make it very clear, Nathaniel's work as the head of marketing, essentially, at FTX was mostly doing commercials. (laughs) He did the Super Bowl ad with Larry David, which we have a fun Wikipedia fun fact for you later about that, if you feel like sharing, Nathaniel. Let me give you a quick FTX timeline, just so people have that in mind, too. So Alameda Research, the hedge fund, was started first. It was started in sort of late 2017, early 2018. Initially, it was just funded with Sam's money that he had made as a Wall Street trader. He split off, then they raised more money. It has a murky and interesting history, which is beyond the scope, I think, for today. But the hedge fund started first. I had no idea about that. But I did hear him talk about how he specifically named it research because he knew that he wasn't going to get investments or big backers if he used any sort of crypto name in the like name of the company. Listen, one of the this is an aside. 
But one of the things that people inside the crypto industry, myself included, get very frustrated by is that it is incredibly difficult still to this day to get normal banking services, normal auditing services if you are a crypto company. And nominally, this is because they're worried about scams and all these sort of things, which you look at this sort of situation, you say, well, they're, you know, they're right to be scared about that. But if banks had been willing to work with crypto companies and apply all of their safeguards, all the safeguards that have been developed over hundreds of years in the traditional financial system, there's a fairly strong argument that FTX never would have happened. It happened because of a specific person made a decision to do fraud, but it was allowed to be perpetrated for so long because it was working in these gray areas because it was the only one who serviced it. So yes, Alameda Research did explicitly name itself Alameda Research to kind of work around those things. But there's a fairly good argument if it could have just been called Alameda Hedge Fund, the world would have been a better place in terms of the outcomes. But in any case, Alameda started first, FTX started two years later in 2019. And FTX, the whole premise basically was that Sam had been on Wall Street and some of the other traders that he worked with had traditional financial experience. The crypto industry was super nascent. It was very inefficient. There were crazy spreads in terms of what people wanted to pay and what people wanted to sell. And these are the types of things that on Wall Street would have been arbitraged away, right? They're money-making opportunities. FTX's whole premise was buy traders for traders. They developed a bunch of new ways of trading crypto that were massively popular among sophisticated traders because they just looked more like the traditional financial system and how people could trade in normal markets. So very quickly, FTX became an extremely popular exchange, particularly with international traders who were doing really high volume. So hundreds of millions of trade volume per month. And where I come into the story is 2020. FTX is very popular among international exchanges. It's very popular for derivatives trading, but they want to get into the retail investors. They want to compete with people like Coinbase. They want to create a service that any average person could use to buy their first Bitcoin or their first Ethereum or whatever it is. And they bought a company called Blockfolio, which I had been working with as a marketing consultant, which was a price tracking app, basically a portfolio tracking app, as a way to create an exchange for retail customers, a mobile first experience. So late 2020 is when I joined. Right around that time, basically in the next couple months, is when Sam decided that if we were going to go out and compete with the Coinbase of the world, who had a 10-year head start on us, we needed to be very, very loud. And so obviously that's the genesis of where the stadium naming rights came from and Tom Brady ads and eventually a Larry David Super Bowl. And so that was sort of all part and parcel. But another thing that sort of happened over the course of 2021 into the beginning of 2022 is that Sam started to get very famous. And Sam had always been very loud and very clear that what his intention was, was to give away all of the money that he made to causes that he thought were to the benefit of humanity. He was from a particular school of sort of philanthropic thinking called effective altruism, which focuses on basically how people can do the greatest good with the resources that they have. Sam was part of a, a sort of subsection of that that was, had a mindset called earn to give, where basically they were trying to earn as much money as humanly possible to influence the shape of the world. Now. Part of what Sam got into was politics. Sam was Biden's second biggest donor in the last election, very quietly. It was with no fanfare. In fact, no one from the Biden administration even ever called him to thank him. And as he started to get more prominence, he started to get way more involved in politics 
very, very early. And it wasn't just the normal sort of trying to get positive crypto regulation. The issues that he was more interested in were things like pandemic preparedness. And so he started spending unbelievable, untold amounts of money on political causes, political campaigns. I mean, basically, he was taking advantage of every loose money, gray money type system that exists in politics. But it wasn't just Democrats. It was everybody across the... He was an issues-based person. Pandemic preparedness, obviously, like he was working with Mitch McConnell on pandemic preparedness because that was something that Mitch McConnell was really interested in well, and Sam wanted to fund anyone who wanted to focus on those issues. Salem was effectively the right-leaning person to Sam's left-leaning person. So Ryan was a very sort of like, don't tax me kind of libertarian style guy. And so he kind of became the face of that side of FTX's political operations. Mm -hmm. What Ryan just admitted guilt to was campaign finance violations, because basically what was alleged, and this is like I said, what Sam will go on trial for in a separate trial, is that FTX made these ridiculously large loans of hundreds of millions of dollars to key executives in order to support causes that Sam wanted under their own names, which is illegal, right? So Nishad was given a $523 million loan because loans aren't taxed in order to go fund all of these things under his names rather than Sam's name. So it was a way for Sam to exert his political will without having his name attached to things. But again, highly illegal. Now, an added wrinkle that makes this even more intriguing and adds some of the love, murder, at least family side to it is that it appears from what we see that Sam's mom was the person who was sort of masterminding how to actually do all of these campaign contributions. Which you guys should know that both of his parents are Stanford law professors, right? Yeah, and so his mother has been in Democratic fundraising circles forever and seemed to be pretty involved in the machine. His father is an international tax specialist who it appears had a very significant role in structuring what amounted to ultimately more than 100 different companies that were part of this sort of labyrinthine corporate structure. And was the one who encouraged Sam to leave Hong Kong and go to the Bahamas, which is where a lot of this mess really percolated, right? It was was already It was already, yeah. Yeah. it, It was already there. So I think we should actually take a step back here, though, to talk about why Sam was getting so famous. Part of it was that FTX was growing so fast. I mean, we were making, we made a billion dollars in 2021 from trading fees. There were just so many people coming to the exchange. It was, for a time, the fastest growing startup in history. And so that's obviously part of it. But that wasn't the main reason. The main reason is that we were supposed to be the good guys. Every person who joined that organization, me especially, me included, was sold on the idea that this was a different type of company, not just crypto company, but company in general. Sam was always talking about the causes that we would support, setting up these foundations. All of these things were part of a larger mission, right? Which is why people would ultimately feel so betrayed when so much of it was based on this sort of fraudulent idea. Well, I also want to interject and just say, when you explained to me why you got into crypto, it was talking about this great equalizer among communities and about how there are populations where the government sees their money, where you saw Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies as something that could be safe for different people in emerging countries and other places. 100%. So, I mean, I had this 
mission orientation that came into it. The story that I always tell when I'm talking about sort of how I got into crypto and where Bitcoin clicked for me was when I was in college, I started working with Sudanese refugees in Cairo. These are people who had marched thousands and thousands of miles from their home with basically what they could carry, anything of value they had to leave behind. And that got me thinking about how amazing it would have been if this non-confiscatable thing, store of value in Bitcoin, that they could just memorize a short series of words and have access to whatever value they had existed back then, right? Something that couldn't be stolen easily by authoritarian governments. And we have the privilege of not thinking about this much, but a huge portion of the world, billions and billions of people live under authoritarian governments. Even more live under unstable monetary regimes. If you look at a place like Argentina that we go to all the time, they've been dealing with 100% inflation. That means over the course of a year, all the money that you have in your savings account that you've saved over your entire life is worth half of what it was before. It's crazy. And so that's like, for me, that was sort of a lot of the genesis. And so when I found this institution, this emergent startup that was growing so fast, that was offering something so different in terms of a product, and that wanted to tell that story of crypto, and then even transform that story of crypto into this idea of a benefit for the world, it was super exciting. And frankly, that's what you see if you look at, you know, you mentioned my role was basically ads. I did TV ads. I was in charge of the Tom Brady ads, the Steph Curry ads. And the common thread throughout all of them was not, we weren't really even advertising FTX. We were telling a different story of what crypto can be that was for everyone, for lots of different types of people. The first ad that we did with Tom Brady was literally him and Giselle calling everyone they knew from every walk of life and inviting them to get involved. Oh my God, the Boston bartender in that ad was so good. Yeah, there are a lot of great things that, you know, were, were all kind of predicated on this idea that what we were contributing to was a shift in this industry from this sort of Wild West moment in its early history to something that was legitimate, above board, helpful to people, value accretive, and generally good instead of generally bad. And that was what Sam was fighting for, for it being actually regulated. Yes. Literally what I was just going to say. Like you took the words literally out of my mouth, but I was just going to talk about, I mean, I was listening to him talking, I think Cory Booker was complimenting his hair for saying it was like a better Afro than he ever had. But it was when he was at the government talking about how it should be regulated and how it should be treated the same way as traditional financial institutions. It seemed like he was on that. That was his goal. FTX had decided that it wanted to be the best regulated crypto exchange in the world and that it wanted to go actually help the government figure out how to do these regulations. So Sam testified numerous times across 2022 on a variety of issues, all of which contributes to the sting later. I mean, it's hypocrisy. It's like all of our cases that are the most popular are the ones in which the killer is so hypocritical. So he's there testifying in Congress about how he wants it to be regulated, how he wants it to be safe. And was that all a mirage? Well, he, the thing that he said that will come up the most in this trial, in any of those hearings, was basically he made an argument that because we have 100% reserves, we're safer than any other financial institution. Basically, you know, banks don't have to keep all of your money when you put it in the bank. They have a percentage that they have to keep of the total reserves, but no banks are fully reserved. They're all fractional reserves. 
Crypto exchanges, on the other hand, were full reserve banks, basically. They were a place where all of the assets were guaranteed, and he said this explicitly. And Maury Povich determined <laughs> that was a lie. <laughs> now, what Sam's defense is going to be bringing it back to the trial is they're going to point to all that same stuff, and they're going to say, do you think that this kid was so stupid that he would knowingly be out trotting out these lies in front of Congress? Like, he was just negligent. He just didn't realize what was going on. Blah, 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 blah. That's going to be his defense. But it doesn't change the fact that when it all went down and when all of these FTXers, who are some of the most competent people that I had ever met and worked with, discovered this, the sense of raw betrayal was so overwhelming. We were all together when you were yes. experiencing this. This happened roughly a year ago at this point, and we were together celebrating birthdays and Halloween, Halloween. and anniversaries. My parents and I have the same anniversary. And it was the stages of denial and grief and frustration and then just raw Shock. anger. And this happened, I mean, the, it, it was a 10-day period between when Coindesk, who published my podcast at the time, published an expose about Alameda's balance sheet to when FTX declared bankruptcy the following Friday. It was the eight days, Thursday to a Friday, which is unbelievable. We will include in the show notes a link to the episode that I did about that week because it's, oh it's it was so good. It's it was very, so good. It's very long. It's an it hour long. Probably but like the most proud I've ever been of you, other than when I first saw you hold our newborn baby. <laughs> Me too. I mean, I listened to that episode with my like eyes and ears completely just peeled. It was insane. Yeah. So let's add the most sort of this show dimension to this story. Because it's increasingly at the center of all the media narratives around it. And it turns out it's going to be at the very center of the trial as well. And that's the romantic relationship between <laughs> Sam and Caroline. Okay, give us the full the love interest, love murder backstory <laughs> about this because it sounds pretty seedy. One thing to note is that all of this information that I'm sharing, I have acquired after the fact. No one inside FTX had any goddamn idea that this was happening as it was happening. Stop it. There was another relationship, though, wasn't there, that some FTXers knew about that's not this? There were lots of rumors. There's lots of rumors. So there was talk about everybody. Also just gross. But <laughs> yeah, just you guys, just if you don't know Sam, just Google him right now and you'll understand Andy's comment. But... There were rumors within the organization about certain relationships, but no one knew about this one. Very few people. So Sam had, it, it appears that over sort of the last few months of this whole thing, that they had let the very small handful of people. So all of these people basically who are in on this conspiracy lived together in the Bahamas in this giant penthouse apartment. How much was it a month? I heard something insane online. Do you remember? Well, they owned it. So they bought it. It was a $16 million or a $30 million place. Okay. Yeah, th that's right. That's right. 30 sounds exactly right. And they had just moved everyone down to Miami. Yeah. Remember, they were trying to get you to move down there, and we were freaking out. Well, so the funny thing about our tenure with FTX is that we have been through the startup kids want everyone to be in the office all the time <laughs> because they're part of a shared family experience. We were those kids. Yeah, yeah. we were those kids. And so there wasn't a chance that we were going to do that again with FTX. At a different company, though, I would clarify. Yes. yes at a, yeah. yeah. And so I pretty early on set boundaries 
around. I mean, basically, I was just like, I'm, I would like I'm to just pause remote. for the Love Murder audience to say that Andy, at two years running, went to Thanksgiving at our startup house. That is how enmeshed we were with the startup world. <laughs> yes. So, anyways, the TLDR, we set boundaries fast. I only met Sam once in Chicago. It was the only trip I ever took for FTX, even though I made, I guess I made the ad in Florida, but otherwise, never went to the offices, never went to the Bahamas. So Sam and Carolyn had both worked at a company called Jane Street, which is a high-frequency trading firm that is a very successful firm. Uh, it's a whole different story in terms of the rise of, of HFTs. But when Sam was starting Alameda Research, he at some point talked to Carolyn and was like, you should probably come work with this. And so she came out, she was a, a, a trader, and at somewhere along the way, they got romantically involved. Now whatever. It's complicated if you are in a relationship with employees, blah, 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 blah. It's more complicated when, when you are trying to make a big public statement about separating FTX and Alameda Research. Stam nominally stepped down from the role of CEO of Alameda Research basically in the fall of 2021. And he named co-CEOs, a guy named Sam Tribuco, who he had gone to math camp with, and Carolyn Ellison. And uh, it appears now from kind of what we've learned post the collapse that almost immediately Tribuco started kind of checking out. And for all intents and purposes, Carolyn was in charge of the running of Alameda Research. It also appears that she was never really comfortable in this role, that she didn't feel like she was doing a good job, that she wanted Sam to basically tell her what to do all the time. So it sounds like Sam was surrounding himself with yes men who are not particularly equipped to do the job. Yes. There's a lot of people involved that seem like he met at math camp here. Yeah. Sam has a very strong tendency to not value experience, to not value any sort of standard qualifications, and to not really value people who don't see the world the same way as him. Which I would like to add that Nathaniel was ushered in under a hired because you you were all those things. You had well, different yeah, opinions. But about I think all like ultimately the people that he's surrounding himself closest with don't have the experience and the knowledge that someone like Nathaniel, who was an ushered in hire, have and because it, he's wanting people surrounding him closest to him who can't see the things that he may be fraudulently doing. Sam was very convinced, and I think he still is to this day, that he's smarter than everyone else. And that I think that he is shocked that he's in the predicament that he's in right now. And I think that he still thinks that he can somehow get out of it because he's smarter than other people. But the reason that this whole Caroline Sam story matters is a couple parts. One is that she was involved. I mean, she was leading the hedge fund when it suffered the big losses that led it to basically just trade with an unlimited budget and an unlimited credit line from FTX that was backstopped by its customers. Two, she has said that she had knowledge that they made an explicit decision to use customer assets to allow Alameda to try to climb out of this hole rather than just wrapping it up and saying, you know, we failed, the, the company's bankrupt. And three, she has become the absolute centerpiece of the trial. Basically, the defense's argument is that it was Carolyn's fault, that Sam told her to hedge trades and that she didn't, and that it was her who was wrong in terms of how the whole kind of apparatus blew up. 
Sam, of course, is not acknowledging that there was any sort of backdoor or anything like that. He's just trying to make it seem like this was a normal course of that happened because the crypto industry crashed and it was Carolyn's fault, not him. And in fact, Sam had told her to do something that she didn't do. That's central to their argument. Now, the prosecutor says that that's BS and that Sam was in charge of everything and, and he knew all this stuff. But Carolyn is really going to be at the center of this. How much of their sexual and romantic relationship do you think they're going to go into? Deep. So let's read a little excerpt from this Michael Lewis book that came out yesterday. I cannot recommend this book for many reasons. There's just too many holes. And I think that Lewis is stuck on trying to lionize Sam. But there is some interesting details that he got, particularly around this relationship, because it was one of the very small number of things about the whole situation that he cared about finding out about. So one of the weird things between Sam and Caroline is that they would send these business memos back and forth to each other to explore their relationship. So that's how they communicated. It wasn't like a normal conversation. It was in the form of memos with bullet points and stuff. So wait, they weren't just like sexting? This is... No, no. So Caroline had sent him a memo about their relationship and how she wasn't particularly content with it. And this is after he had left Hong Kong to start the Bahamas office. So Michael Lewis writes, after Sam had split for Hong Kong, he had replied to Carolyn's first memo with a memo of his own, laying out the pros and cons of a sexual relationship. It began with a seriously compelling list titled Arguments Against. Now this is Sam's writing. In a lot of ways, I don't really have a soul. This is a lot more obvious in some contexts than others, but in the end, there's a pretty decent argument that my empathy is fake, my feelings are fake, my facial reactions are fake. I don't feel happiness. What's the point in dating someone who you can't physically make happy? So this is obviously going to be at the absolute center of this thing because Sam is admitting that he is perpetrating a fraud, maybe not a financial fraud that you can go to jail for, but that he's literally practiced facial motions to seem not psychotic to people. So this is, a, I think, is going to, to, to come up. But that seems also like, shouldn't he be evaluated for different types of... Well, he's taking massive numbers of drugs for depression and... Yeah, which also might have contributed... There's a whole different substory of this, which I, I don't yeah, think we should we don't get, have to get into, into it. it. Let's put it this way. I think that there's going to be a lot of analysis about Sam's psychology and what he was. I mean, he, there's this consistent theme of him not feeling anything forever. He couldn't tell Michael Lewis a single friend that he had when he was younger that could tell him anything about Sam, which is just bizarre. But it's so interesting because he does, like not to bring this up as the like resident vegan, but it does seem like he actually really cared about animals for a while. Sam didn't give a shit about animals. No, he didn't fact. actually. So, it was about the appearances, Andy. Well, so it's not just, okay. a, not just appearances here. It's also a philosophy. So specifically, the veganism came from in college, a friend of his named Adam, who was actually the first person who's testifying for the prosecution right now was talking with Sam about utilitarianism. So utilitarianism is the idea that every decision should be maximized for the good of the maximum number of people. So if something that you're doing is good for you, but it hurts someone else, you shouldn't do it. And it can be a very, on the one hand, it seems at first glance like, oh yeah, sure, maximize utility and happiness for the maximum number of people. But taken to extremes, it gets really crazy. For example, a lot of the philanthropic causes that this group of people around Sam cared about were not things like malaria nets for people now. It was presenting future disasters because lives in the future were at least worth as much as lives here right now. So it, it becomes very cold very fast. 
anyways, Adam at one point challenged Sam after Sam had said something about being a utilitarian. And he said, well, how can you possibly eat meat? And it basically was just like, Sam was like, I can't, it was a challenge basically to his philosophy or to, to what he said to himself. So it's not so much that it was sort of fake for appearances, but it was all part of this construct of who Sam was creating in his mind of, of himself. Well, and it definitely drew, I forget what the guy's name was at Jane Street, but there was someone who really took a liking to him because he found out that he was involved in these organizations for against animal cruelty and that he was a vegan. So it definitely like forged some how relationships and trust in him. Nature versus nurture too. Like how much did his parents do this to him? Well, there's a, there's another huge thing that's got to be studied and looked at. <laughs> Very love murdery. It's yeah. so love murdery, guys. This was supposed to be a quick like current affairs 15 minutes, but like I think that we could go into this so deeply. The psychology of Sam and his family and his relationships with his family is really interesting. His mom also one of the things that came out right after he was arrested were papers that his mom had written effectively advancing a theory that there's no such thing as guilt. Like people can't be guilty of any crimes that they commit because they're just a product of their circumstances. That sounds very philosophical. <laughs> a lot of people sort of pointed out that that sounded a hell of a lot like Sam not really accepting any guilt mm -mm. around anything that he had done or any harm that he had created for anyone yep. else. I got to finish the quote from, so that was, I, I read you the first con against the relationship. Now, the list was followed by another briefer list called arguments in favor, again, of having a sexual relationship with Caroline. I really fucking like you. I really like talking to you. I feel a lot less worried about saying what's on my mind to you than almost anyone else. You share my most important interests. You're a good person. I really like fucking you. You're smart and impressive. You have good judgment and aren't full of shit. You appreciate a lot of me for who I am. So they're literally sending these letters back and forth. By the way, the reason that Sam was in jail waiting for his trial, just to add the sort of, again, this weird sexual psychodrama aspect to all of this, is that he had been put out on bail. He was in his parents' house and he kept pushing buttons, basically. He was arrested in December. In February, the judge got mad at him because he had been using a VPN to log on to sites that he wasn't allowed to log on to as per the terms of his bail. Now, Sam said he was just using a VPN that he had set up in the Bahamas to watch NFL games, which everyone called BS on. But at that point, the judge didn't revoke bail. Where the judge revoked bail was when over the summer, Sam leaked all of Caroline's private journals that she had kept on her drive account to the New York Times very clearly to anyone observing from the outside as a way to discredit her as a witness. I think it's quite clear that they're going to try to portray her as sort of some mealy-mouthed, weak-willed girl who was way in over her head and screwed everything up, and that's really the cause. And the judge said no way and threw him in MDC in Brooklyn. I think there's a couple things we can note from this. Number one, it does not seem, based on what I've read, that Caroline was even remotely in charge of anything going forward. And mealy-mouthed does not a Machiavellian, Macbethian woman make. And also, he wouldn't even really appreciate any conversation about Macbeth or Shakespeare, because I did read that he said Shakespeare was bullshit. Yeah. He thought books were stupid. Books were stupid. This, you guys, you guys Jesse, know. Jesse, up until, this up is, until this point, Jesse's been willing to keep an open mind. Until now, <laughs> this is... It is, it hurts. 
my soul, the things he said about fiction and stories and what their usefulness for society. Well, it's funny because he's going to have to come up with some real fiction tales for his trial <laughs> coming up. So I, just, the tables have turned. It seems like his primary mode of entertainment going forward is likely to be books. So <laughs> I feel like I was very, obviously, I knew what he was doing with releasing those letters and diary entries that Carolyn wrote, which I think is like very rude and very violating. But it almost like the way and what she wrote in those letters, though, it just makes me feel like he's more to blame because it seemed like in the letters, in some of them at least, she was just essentially saying how uncomfortable she was in the role that he had given her. I agree. I think that the idea that he sort of just didn't know what was going on is not supported by this woman's complete and frequent articulations of how underqualified for this role she is. And, and how vulnerable. much she needs him. It just, I mean, it, it undermines his case. I completely agree. The messed up thing about this is that I think that the defense's strategy is try to confuse the jury as much as possible and sow just enough doubt in terms of it being intentional fraud that they can't get a unanimous jury. I think, I mean, it's literally, remember, they don't have to convince no. the jury that Sam didn't do it. Jury. Yeah. I think that's the strategy. But they already have an uphill battle to fight because I think that even if people don't know about Sam, I think that the general opinion of cryptocurrency is not good. That is a scam. That's what is so frustrating for the people who are still in this industry is that it's the big question is how much is this going to be a trial portrayed as a trial for Sam and a specific person who committed fraud versus just an indictment of the industry as a whole. And we don't know that yet. I think the positive sign on this is that there is clearly, maybe I'll put it this way, the story was always Sam when it was good, not just crypto in general. It was Sam. It was the Sam story. And that propensity for trying to anchor our narratives to individuals and big people in history, I think is going to work against Sam and to the benefit of the crypto industry in this case. Because ultimately, this isn't sort of some random thing that happened because crypto is easy to evade. It's a very intentional set of decisions where Sam decided that assets that he had put in writing didn't belong to him and were there for other people could actually be used by him. That was a decision that was made. And that's what the core of the prosecution's argument is, that that's fraud. I also feel like I have to say that Andy and I have talked about this off camera, off Mike, because we're not on camera. <laughs> but we've talked about this before, that he is definitely one of the perpetrators we've seen before, the defendants that we've seen, that seems to think he's even smarter than his attorneys. And that's always a dangerous position to be in. It's a red flag. Because there were some legal professionals commenting on how they were surprised that there hadn't been any plea deals made or discussions about that given the complexity of this case and the implications of it. And I said, I wouldn't be surprised if he still thinks he can win. Yeah. I think that the, one of the places that we're going to see how this plays out is whether he gets up on the stand in his own defense. Ugh, that's I, always a nightmare. If I were a betting man, which I'm really not, I would put money on him. I don't think that his team's going to be able to keep him off the stand. I mean, you kind of... I don't think so either. I kind I of think, think you I are. I think he's going to try. You married me, like, sight unseen, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs>
I think that the case matters because there are so many dimensions of it. It's not just about this one industry. It's not just about this thing. I think you nailed it earlier when you said it's about hypocrisy and what people can get away with. And I think in some ways that a big theme of American life post the great financial crisis in 2008 has been this sense on both the right and the left that the people who caused this unbelievable financial failure that impacted so many lives never got held to account, right? Yeah. And I think that part of why the Southern District of New York is going so hard at Sam is to send a message that you can't just do this just because you have a lot of money. Now, Sam is using every tool in his toolbox, all the available tools that are there for people who have means and who have fame and who have presence to try to shift the story and get out of it and tell a different story. And I think, frankly, that's why people are so upset with Michael Lewis's book is it feels like an asset to Sam to paint him as this sort of, you know, wonderkind kid who just got some things wrong, aw shucks, rather than someone who made a specific set of intentional decisions that led to people losing their money. I mean, I think it sounds like Michael Lewis not being able to come to terms with the fact that he was fooled too. I mean, I think you were talking about it with Andy, maybe off mic, but Michael Lewis obviously trades in stories usually about incredible people who do incredible things in crazy circumstances. And that is how he started shadowing Sam when Sam was on the cover of Forbes, when he was one of Time's most interesting and influential people. And he was this young man who was trying to put good into the world. And it seems like the problem with the book is that that narrative had to shift. And it seemed like Michael Lewis did not change his narrative as much as it should have been. It feels like yeah, the he wasn't, glasses stayed on. He wasn't willing to admit that he had been sucked in as well, which is sad because the interesting thing is that I think a reasonable critique of Michael Lewis's books from a journalistic perspective is that he maybe puts too much of his own character into them. This is one where he could have been a character, where he could have been a representative for all of us who were duped and who were sucked in and who wanted to believe the story, who still want to believe that someone who makes money that fast could want to do good with it and actually yeah. figure out how to do it. It's an extremely compelling thing that ended up being a mirage and ultimately was just means to an end of a guy who was doing whatever the hell he wanted with not his money. And if you want a story about a man who believed in the vision but was very angry about it, we'll listen to Nathaniel's podcast, which will be linked in the show notes because you were very upset about everything that happened. Yeah. It's been a frustrating year. It's been a very frustrating year. It's been frustrating to have to like relive this with you. Yeah. But I'm a hell of a lot happier about where I'm sitting than where he's sitting right now. <laughs> and you know what I tell everyone when they ask me about this is that I'm just glad that you were never in the inner circle and you were never close to Sam. And I appreciate your appreciation for this industry and your love and your fortitude. And I believe in you. I do too. <laughs> so Nathaniel single-handedly, with the help of his creative agency, did the most amazing, my favorite Super Bowl ad of all time. Now quite infamous. It has been quoted in many publications as the most infamous financial advertisement of all time. 
and actually genius for Larry David, I have to say. And we will also link to this ad. But I would like you to tell us about the ad, which, by the way, guys, I had a Larry David connection, which is a story for a different time. But I think that you should talk about the ad, the conception of the ad, and then also Joe, which is Sam's dad, getting involved, who you had probably more interface with Joe than Sam in some ways. So we knew that we wanted to do a Super Bowl ad because when it comes to leverage of brand building, there's no bigger stage, right? It is, I mean, it's literally every other thing in the world says it's the Super Bowl of X. It's the Super Bowl of Y. The Super Bowl is the Super Bowl of brand building and advertising. It's honestly the only time people ever watch ads too. My argument for doing a Super Bowl ad was always that it's the one time of year that people ask to be advertised to, that they actively want to participate in seeing yep. ads. Yep. So we took this very seriously and spent an inordinate amount of time going through concepts. I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of concepts. Oh, and should you tell out, them written. too? By the way, guys, just so you know, there was never going to be a 23 ad because of what happened. But there was Nick Cage conversations just for Andy. There really were. <laughs> they uh, weren't just for very, Andy. I'm, I feel betrayed strictly because of that. <laughs> there was literally a Nick Cage with a cat concept. So. Yeah, no, it was literally an ad for Andy. <laughs> so we had about five or six different agencies helping us, including the one that we had worked with most. And we settled on this idea of a person traveling throughout history, seeing these technological innovations and not believing in them and kind of dismissing them. And instantly, it came with a picture of Larry David as the historical curmudgeon. And we said, that was the ad. We want to do this ad, but it has to be Larry David. And so we began the process of negotiating. We had some connections with him. He shares agents with some of the other people that we worked with, so they were able to put in a good word. We had our first meeting with Larry and his writing partner at Curb Your Enthusiasm. And we were all a little nervous. We, we didn't know what to expect from this meeting. We get into it. It was a, a Zoom call. And we think they're going to maybe talk about budgets or blah, 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 blah. Instead, these guys have 20 pages of handwritten ideas of situations, of famous inventors and bits and gags and jokes. And we knew that there was something magic there. So part of what made that ad so good was that it was Larry obviously starring in it, but Larry went to the nines to make that a great ad. I mean, his, it was his director from Curb Your Enthusiasm who directed the ad spot. So anyways, the ad was coming all together. And it was, wasn't it the first time he's ever done an ad? It was the first time that he had ever done an advertisement on television. Yeah. He had never agreed to do that before. I wish he probably thinks he wished that he had never agreed to it <laughs> in general. And so... My approach to ads... It's very Curb Your Enthusiasm. My, my approach... <laughs> it is. It's so... Yeah. My, my approach to ads is you script it to the nines, you figure out everything, but then you have to be a little bit flexible at the end. And there were a couple of things that changed at the very last minute for the better, a bunch of improvisation from Larry. And so part of the story that's come out recently is that Sam's dad, Joe, was actually in the ad. He's one of the old guys in the scene where Larry David says he can't believe that we're going to give stupid people the right to vote during the, the Constitutional Congress, which is one of my favorite scenes in it. And so he's just a little extra, and he had basically bulldozed his way in. He desperately he wanted to be fan. <laughs> a huge fan. Yeah. Huge fan. He desperately wanted to be in the ad. And so we put him in there. 
Then he decided that that entitled him to have an opinion about the creative of the ad. And literally on the last day before we had to submit it to NBC, he sent an email CCing Sam about the latest cut that we had seen. Because there's a three-minute version of this ad and then the 60-second version, which was going to air. Which I very much suggest you guys watch the three-minute version because it's incredible. And it is. he came back with a bunch of suggestions for the 60-second ad about <laughs> how many different scenes we should cut out and maybe we should focus it on just a couple and all this sort of... Oh, and just his, his yes, scene? All this asinine advice. And Sam responded, huh, yeah, I think that's actually pretty interesting. And for the first time, basically, since I had started working for this company... I completely ignored what they said. I told the agency to send it to NBC <laughs> and don't listen to them and just do it as such because I wasn't going to let Sam's dad ruin the ad. Oh, thank, thank God you didn't. I know. Thank goodness. Really, That's truly. almost worse than dealing with a client. <laughs> dealing with someone's dad <laughs> is so, so true. And I'm so proud of that ad. And the best thing about the ad is that at the very end, y'all changed it. So at the end, Larry David still says no. And it's beautiful. It's poetic now in retrospect. At the end of the day, Larry David still wins because in the ad, he says no thank you to FTX. Couldn't have been a more perfect ending. <laughs> <laughs> wow. This has been an absolutely epic Kurt Affairs. Thank you so much to my husband, the love of my life, Nathaniel Whittemore at NLW for joining us. I'm Jesse Prey. And I'm Andy Cassette signing off for Love Murder Current Affairs. <laughs>